Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Billy Sherwood. It seems that we at Inside Music Cast have recently been delivering musical legacy stories. Our next guest is also a legacy artist. His dad was a big band leader for Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra. His mom, a talented vibes player. His brother Michael is a sought-after keyboardist and session player. But if you're a fan of the rock band Yes, then you're probably familiar with our guest, Billy Sherwood. A seasoned multi-instrumentalist, vocalist, and producer, Billy earned a Grammy nomination as producer for Paul Rogers' Muddy Water Blues for Best Contemporary Blues Album. While still with Yes, he simultaneously worked on his own solo efforts and took on new producing projects that have included work with Yes bassist Chris Squire. Most recently, he has joined a new band, Circa, featuring Yes alumni Tony Kay and Alan White, along with guitarist Jimmy Hahn, and released their debut album in 2004. Inside Music Cast welcomes Billy Sherwood. Hey, Billy, thanks for joining us today. Hey, man, thanks for having me, guys. Welcome. I'm going to go way back, and I want to talk about uh, you know the early days. I mean, you come from a, a very musically involved family and background, and tell us a little about your family and the musical influences they instilled in you as you, as you were growing up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember a time without music in the house. My my father was a big band leader, uh-huh. and uh, my mom, you know, began on Broadway as a chorus girl, and mm-hmm. the two of them met and, and formed an act. By the time that I was born, it was in full swing, so I kind of just got born right into the yeah. into the world of it. And uh, my grandparents were in vaudeville. I have some great photos really? of Bobby and Gail Sherwood doing their thing. So <laughs> it's kind weird. of a long line of this crazy business. So, <laughs> you know, it. Uh, I, I just don't remember a time where music wasn't around. So it sort of right. uh, it just kind of came extremely naturally to fall into it. You know, you spoke about your dad a second ago. And you know, like you said, he was uh, a big band leader. He was also a, a very accomplished musician, a composer, and even an actor. Um, yeah, and, and you know what were some of the things he acted in? Where well, it was a film, or my brother just went recently to this film archive uh, here in Los Angeles and found some really bizarre old stuff of him from the Milton Berle show and really? <laughs> some other TV early, early TV that he was on. Yeah, um, uh, other game shows and crazy stuff that was going on back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but his major film that he was in one of the one of the bigger ones was Pal Joey with Frank Sinatra, where he played yeah. the band leader and. Uh, for Frank, it's uh, kind of a, a big movie for him, and, <laughs> sure. and it's really cool to have that as part of the history. You know, some other names that you know he worked with were you know people like Artie Shaw and Bing Crosby and uh, even Judy Garland. Yeah, he was Bing Crosby's guitar player when he was like 20, I think, uh, somewhere around 2019 or 20. And wow. Then he became a staff guitar player at MGM, you know, when he was 22, and he just was really, you know, prolific at what he did and, and did a lot of it, you know. So you were exposed to music at a, at a very early age. As So so did you start uh, tapping around with uh, different instruments, keyboards, uh, guitar? Or when did you first touch an instrument? There were always, you know, we had this beautiful white grand piano mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. in the living room, and there were always other instruments around, guitar, bass, drums, vibes, because my dad would rehearse whatever band he was working on, you know, a lot of times in the in the living room there. So uh-huh. all the instruments were set up. And, you know, as a kid, you just go in there and bang around and pluck around on <laughs> stuff, nothing serious. But 
it you know it was definitely sparked the imagination to want to continue kind of checking into those instruments and trying to get better on them you know yeah so so when was the division where was the 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 line in the sand that took you from playing by ear and to uh you know getting more formalized in your uh in your musical training where when did that happen uh, you know, I, I don't, I, there's no real line where that happened in time. I just sort of evolved as a musician and, you know, I'm able to hear chords and decipher them, mm-hmm. you know, in detail without kind of knowing where they're coming from or where they're going. I don't know. It's, it's, it's just something that has, is a natural thing. And it's, I, you know, I can remember getting more serious about it all, uh, you know, in my teens, yeah. I started a drummer um, and then as as I evolved kind of down the musical road, I, I played bass, and then it evolved into other instruments. But along the way, as you start playing each instrument, you kind of realize where their role is in the whole picture. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, in your mind, you get a, a different kind of picture of how to do things if you yeah. can uh, understand what each instrument, where where it really lives and where it comes from, you know. Well, ultimately, you know, you could describe yourself as a multi-instrumentalist. You know, most of your solo albums that you've worked on, you've played all the instruments yourself, correct? Yeah, the first solo album I did, uh, the big piece, Jay Shellen played drums on there. Uh And then uh, the next two, I just did, you know, no comment, I did everything by myself. It was a little more electronic-oriented drum-wise, whereas this record, I actually, you know hit record and ran upstairs and played some drums. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, I like to play all kinds of instruments, and, and I'm, I have no fear to, you know, to, to play badly on something until I can make it sound good. <laughs> keep the good stuff. Yeah. Well, sticking with your family here for a second, you also have a brother uh, by the name of Michael who's pretty talented himself. Uh, yeah. He's a keyboardist composer, and I guess he's a pretty sought-after session player as well. Is he, uh, is he older or younger than you? Uh, he's uh, five years older than I am. Okay. And yeah, he does a ton of jingle work and always has here in LA. He's been at it for you know decades now, and yeah. uh, he's entrenched in that world. And and uh, he's a great musician, a great singer, great songwriter. And he actually uh, you know came out with us on the last few circa shows that we did, hmm. and kind of supplementing the vocals and and playing some keys. So Very yeah, cool. Mike's extremely talented dude. Back in '81, you uh, you and him both um, played in a band called Logic. Yep, and we were in Logic that. together. That was actually more his band than mine. I joined it late. You know, he had developed that band with Jimmy Hahn and the rest of those guys back oh, okay. in Vegas. And you know, I was the younger kid who was you know roading the gear and then uh one thing led to another i ended up the bass player you know and and Mm -hmm. everything kind of took off from there for me as far as getting serious about being in bands and trying to get things going but but logic was really mike's you know Mm -hmm. mike's baby and uh uh that was kind of started from. so were you guys playing original stuff or were you covering some stuff what kind of uh, of they were playing you know in las vegas before you know we became logic and got a record deal so to speak uh, they were doing just, you know, covers of this, that, and the other, and Steely Dan, and Genesis, and Yes, and yeah. Floyd, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. I didn't really get involved with the band until they moved out to L.A., and were really trying to get serious about um, getting a record deal. I was out here already, you know, with living out here, going to school, so I was here before them. Yeah. I think when uh, when you joined Logic, you, I think you were only 16 years old at the time. Yeah. 
You know, yeah, it was crazy. I was still in high school, <laughs> and really struggling through some some periods in high school there. And the staff of my uh, continuation school to come check out a showcase that I was going to do for A and M Records, because you know, of course, everybody says they're going to be in rock and roll and do their thing, and they were like, "Yeah, right, kid." And so I invited them. I'll never forget the staff of my school watching me showcase for A&M Records at Madame Wong's West here in California. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, after the show, uh, you know, I met with the principal and uh, I said, what did you think? And she said, come in once a week and just grab some lessons and <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's certainly not an endorsement for, for not continuing in school. Yeah. But, you know, for me, <laughs> my childhood was crazy because my parents were on the road. I... I I went to school in Arizona, Scottsdale for a few months. I went to school in, you know, back east. I went to school in Death Valley. I, I went to school in California. So <laughs> school was kind of in, out, in, out, in, out. <laughs> I guess that uh, brings us to the, the name of your album that you guys released, uh, which describes pretty much your life, which was Nomadic Sands, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah. It was a lot of traveling, and, you know, my parents were musicians, were, were musicians then, and... and Wherever the gig was, we packed up and went, you know, as a family. Yeah. So. Well, speaking of that album, Nomadic Sands, that's, you know, that was the album you put out when you were, uh, you know, signed to A&M. And I was just curious, is that still available? Is that floating around out there? Can you find that anywhere? Uh, yeah, you know, I see them every now and then. People have had their copies and make CDs and pass them around and trade them. But I don't think it's out there in production by any means because it actually was pre-CD. CDs weren't even around yet. So. Right, right. You know, it was just a vinyl release, and I guess they printed up as many as they did, and that was that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> a couple of years after you handed that uh, record deal with A&M, you'd, uh, you signed again with uh, another deal with Polydor. And, yeah, uh, I, uh, when Logic broke up, we sort of splintered and fragmented and wondered what we were going to do, and, mm -hmm. and in that process, you know, that was my first record deal that I had spent a lot of time trying to get, and then really felt good about things and then it all fell apart so it was a yeah. real big letdown on one hand so mm -hmm. you know i wasn't sure where i was going yeah, and yeah. i ran into a friend of mine uh bruce gowdy who is a great songwriter and uh he and i just kind of hit it off as friends and started writing songs and i really dug where he was coming from and vice versa and uh, one of the first songs we wrote was either the Revolution song or The Moment Is Here from that record. Right. And I'll never forget, we wrote four songs that we felt super strong about. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, usually a new band or a new entity, you want to write a bunch of tunes because it's safety in numbers. We were nuts and said, these are the four, we're done, let's go get a deal. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And we shopped it around to every publisher in town and they all said we were crazy. Uh, forget it. And then we went to Warner Brothers, Mike Sandoval, played it for him. He literally got up on his desk and was jumping up and down going, this is going to be amazing. And he wrote us a huge check and one wow. thing was led to another. And we had a record deal before we knew it with Polydor as a result of Polydor looking over at Warner Chapel going, what are you giving those guys all that bread for? You know, it's like there must be something happening here. Yeah. So... Well, you know, those you mentioned a second ago, you shopped it around a little bit, and there were some people who were saying, you know, forget it, no way. You're yeah. crazy. What, what, what was the reasoning? Did they give you a reason? 
Well, you know, too progressive. Sounds like yes. Okay. You, know, you sound like John Anderson. It sounds like Chris Squire. It sounds like police. It, you know, eight million reasons. And and it wasn't really, you know, at the time it was, you know, warrant winger rat. You know, it was exactly. very hairband rock and roll kind of in your face kind of thing. Right. And here we were trying to be this new sort of progressive movement in the midst of it, even though it was a bit more straight ahead and down to earth. There were still progressive elements that were throwing people for a mm-hmm. loop, and those people, you know, were the guys we were trying to get them to write us checks. And I, I don't think we even mentioned, uh, after Logic, the band that you had formed was called World Trade, correct? Yes, World Trade. Uh, okay, we didn't mention the name, but... Which yeah. is, uh, you know, a very trippy thing to have that name under my belt way before 9-11. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what that album was about, and the fact that the Revolution song was about what it's about, is just very, very bizarre. That's interesting, yeah. So, so would you consider the world trade uh, when you guys uh, uh, started up with that album, the approach, and you were writing a little differently? Was that would you consider that sort of an evolution from Logic? Uh, what was changing in your writing schematics? Logic or, was very, you know, Logic had five guys in it who were very headstrong, and mm-hmm. four writers who were really headstrong, and you know. If you listen to that album, you'll hear moments where it sort of goes off into prog land, and then there's moments where it's super sort of sweet and commercial. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for me, you know, I wanted to just play crazy type of musical stuff that maybe was outside the box and, and taking chances and uh-huh. and uh, being kind of an evolution of all the things I'd grown up loving and listening to. Mm-hmm. Whether it was going to work or not, I didn't really care. Right. I wanted to just do that and... You know, that was a big part of why Logic didn't continue, because we had conflict about what the direction was that was really going to take to make it happen. Yeah. And for me, I didn't care about, quote, it happening. I just wanted to make really cool, interesting music, and that's why after Bruce and I finished The Moment Is Here and the Revolution song Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, a couple of the other ones, I just thought, wow, you know what, finally I'm kind of gelling with another guy who wants to get as nuts as I do. This yeah, right. Bizarre. So you, you we mentioned... We both really strongly believed in the music, and you know, we found a few elements in, in the business world that believed in it, too. You know? mm-hmm. So you mentioned just a couple of seconds ago the, the things that you were listening to. What were you listening to around that uh, time? What were your influences? I continue to, you know, pretty much. Uh, you know, Weather Report, Genesis, Yes, Floyd, Gentle Giant, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Brand X. Right. Jocko solo, you know, just music, yeah. great music. You know, I was not into trying to figure out what when the chorus kicks in at two minutes and and why I haven't <laughs> hit the third chorus by three minutes so that we could be right. fading by three forty. And right. that shit was driving. Oh, pardon me, That's that okay. stuff was driving me bananas. Yeah, the, the formula <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, uh, and as you can tell from the speed of life, obviously I still don't adhere to those. <laughs> <laughs> Those rules of song That's right. construction. That's right. <laughs> well, hey, your debut into producing, I guess, came in 1993 when you produced Paul Rogers' Muddy Water Blues. And I think I think this album, uh, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, didn't it grab a uh, Grammy nomination for Best Contemporary Blues Album? It, it did, and we lost to Muddy Guy. Uh, I'm sorry, Muddy Guy. We lost to Buddy Guy. Buddy who guy. Had played on the <laughs> <record>. <laughs> Muddy Strangely Guy. Strangely enough, you know. Yeah, it's funny. Well, that's uh, not a bad start to your career as a producer. I mean, you, you... no, it was cool, and it's an interesting story because I wasn't really supposed to be credited as producer. I kind of was hired on as sort of just a ghost and get in there and get the job done. And 
when it was all said and done, Paul Rogers himself looked at me and said, you produced this thing, put your name up there, mm-hmm. take all that credit and run yeah. with it. And I, I was honored and wow. shocked and <laughs> really happy because it, it really did kind of just, you know, it helped, that's for sure. Yeah, that, that sort of leads me into my next question about working with Paul Rogers. I mean, how did you initially meet him and what brought you two together to work on this project? Well, I met him through Phil Carson, who was the president of uh, Victory Records at okay. the time, who was dealing with Yes, and that's how I met Phil, was through Yes, and and Phil was working on putting together a record with Paul Rogers' solo, you know, Muddy Waters songs, and then featuring a bunch of great artists, and he right. called me in and said, you know, I just want you to kind of produce this thing, but it's really going to be, you know, kind of produced by Paul at the end of the day, and I said, well, that sounds good with me, I don't mind working with Paul. Yeah. So... We worked very closely together getting that on, and, you know, at the end of the day, as I said, Paul just kind of realized it's like I did end up producing the actual album, and, you know, he gave me the credit for it, which was very honorable, nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, Paul Rogers, he's such an amazing talent to begin with, so when, you know, you approached this project, what was it that, I mean, you know, I guess in the role that you were in, what was it that you wanted to achieve? And, and what was it about, you know, Billy well, Sherwood? In that a Paul nutshell, Sh- the, the, the easiest way to put it is, uh, I forget who the harmonica player was who's on there, he's a sweet guy, but he said to me, man, you're making this record all wrong. <laughs> what do you mean? He goes, this sounds like a rock and roll, big, in-your-face production, and we're trying to play the blues here. We should all be in the same room tracking, you know, because I had everybody in their own isolation. Okay, so okay. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I said, man, you know what? We gotta, we're just going for something different here. We're just going to go for it and make it have energy. And, yeah. and let me record this the way it's kind of been rehearsed and played. And, and uh, I think we broke some rules in the sense that it's traditional blues, but it's really hard-edged in places and in your face. And, you know, I think the energy of the songs are unique. And obviously, Paul's interpretation vocally just speaks for itself you know it sort of guides the whole project along yeah so it's hard it's you know that was the 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 funny thing is when you're tracking you know live band usually the vocalist sort of looks at you after you've tracked and said okay i'll redo that as you know we'll get to that after the band gets the take in this case paul's takes are picture perfect and you're just praying the band doesn't screw up (laughs) (laughs) yeah you That's know, true. which they didn't, so it worked out. He's about as solid a, a you know a singer as you can imagine. I mean, he's just yeah, dead on. Yeah, Paul is amazing. Um, you know, I'm going to jump back real quick to your band World Trade, and I, you know, you released an album in 1995 called Euphoria, and one of the songs in the album, uh, the Evolution song, was uh, I think that was your first collaboration with uh, Chris Squire from Yes, right? Mm, no, it actually, wasn't? Um, The More We Live is the first song I wrote with Chris. That's on okay. the Yes Union album. Well, I guess what I'm curious about, you know, you'd begun touring with Yes, I think, a year or two prior to releasing that album, right? Yep. So I'm just curious to know if uh, uh, if it was, was it through Yes that you met Chris originally? Uh, basically, World Trade was just getting released and coming onto the radar, and uh, the guys in Yes who were Yes West without John Anderson, basically, were looking for a singer, mm-hmm. and Derek Shulman who had signed my band World Trade, as my record was being released, became the president of ATCO. Okay. ATCO, where Yes was without a singer. Okay. So Derek said, I got the singer. This guy from World Trade, he'd be perfect. Hmm. Let me introduce you to Chris. And 
I got the call, and I said, well, look, I'm in World Trade. I'm, you know, I'm not interested in joining Yes, I'm in World Trade. And the vibe was, well, just meet and hang out and, you know, get to know each other and see what happens. And, you know, one thing led to another. We became friends, and we wrote a bunch of material, and, you know, the rest is history. But that's how it started was the, the initial meeting came actually, ironically, from, you know, Derek Shulman, one of my heroes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, there's been so many different incarnations of Yes, and what was going on at that time with John Anderson? Well, they were doing ABWH. It was at the tail That's end. right. There was some legal issues with that, wasn't there? Yeah. Well, they were actually out there touring and making records and, and yeah. doing quite well. That's and right. Yes wanted to form a new band because they had the name, and right. uh, they asked me to be the singer, so we experimented with some songs in the studio. The More We Live is one. Love Conquers All, which is on the Yes Years box set, mm-hmm. is another. And, um, you know, the idea was that I would jump in the band and be the lead singer. Of course, you know, I was the only one who thought it was the worst idea that that could happen because Mm -hmm. there's only one singer for Yes in my book, and that's John. Right. And I said to the guys then, this is like, this will kill me. I will never be able to surface after this. Yeah. Because Yes fans are so protective of the entity that it's like, it's one thing to join the band. It's another to replace John. You know, that can <laughs> right. happen. So, right. you know, I was never really a big fan of that concept ever. Yeah. Uh, I had a lot of forces around me pushing me to do it, telling me that it's no big deal, just go for it. But yeah. I, in my heart, wanted and knew that I want to have a long-lasting career here. I don't just, I don't want to go about this right. in this way. This isn't it. Yeah, and it, you know, actually, it happened once before in their career, like back in I think it was 1980 when uh, when uh, he wasn't in the band, and I can't remember the guy, uh, the guy from Buggles, Tre- uh, Tre- Trevor, Horn, Trevor yeah. Horn, yeah, was saying on drama. So, um, yeah, but yeah, well, that's interesting, and you know, Yes has been one of my favorite bands since I was a kid, and you know, I feel as though, you know, personally, I feel like music in any art form, whether you like it or hate it, is is art. But their music, you know, Yes's music, similar to bands like Genesis and ELP and Floyd mm-hmm. and Zeppelin. Yeah. I mean, to me, those were those were true works of art. You know, those guys played their instruments and they they played the parts together in the studio without you know the aid of a lot of digital edi- editing like we have today. And of course, you know, I'm referring to most of what they did in the '60s and '70s and probably most of the '80s. But uh, you know, you were in the band from what was it, '94 to 2000? Yep. And you uh, well, were, you know, I, I toured with them in '94 on uh-huh. the talk tour. And then I I produced and, you know, engineered the, some of the Keys to Ascension stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I joined the band in 96 as a full member with, you know, the Open Your Eyes record okay. and, and stayed until 2000. Well, my point was, going back to, you know, this whole, you know, uh, issue I was talking about, how they attacked and how they went about, you know, their music in the studio. They, you know, they played their instruments. They were such great musicians, and, and, and they still are. And I was curious about your involvement. You know, you were... You were involved in so many aspects, from touring to, you know, recording and, and engineering. And I just wanted to know about your experience with those guys. Uh, w- you know, when you were in the studio or when you were out on the road, How, what was it like? Well, it, it changed as my relationship evolved. I mean, you know, when I first was working with them during the union sessions, <clears throat> I didn't really know the animal as well as I learned to know it. You know, so mm-hmm. I was a bit naive in certain areas, and uh, and but was still thrilled to be there doing yeah. the job. And then, you know, as life evolves and you start realizing, you know, business is business, that, you know, when it came time to tour in 94, um, I was hired on as a sideman, not as a member of the band, and right. that was fine, and I did that and enjoyed it. But I saw kind of the dust from these 
particular political gatherings that weren't going so well back in yeah. the age, and I thought, right. holy cow, mm-hmm. this is the yes that I didn't really, you know, I wasn't really prepared to see. That yeah, was an interesting time. And then that was the revelation of, yeah, this is a real business here, this yeah. is a band, and these are, you know, this, this, this isn't, you know, the fantasy anymore. So, but I was a sideman then, so I could just kind of maneuver around those fireworks, and it wasn't a big deal. Once I joined the band as a full member, now I have a stake in where, yes, sales and what the direction is in the course, mm-hmm. yeah. I got into it, you know, just as strongly as anybody else in the band to, mm-hmm. to say my two cents and try to push it along and help. And, you know, through that process, you you just kind of, everything changes from when we were kids listening to going for the one in our headphones and right. wondering what they were like to just the reality of dealing with business. You know? And that's what I was going to mention, you know, business aside, that had to be a really cool opportunity for you. Uh, musically, it was amazing, yeah. and uh, you know, it was was very cool to play all that great music yeah. live every night, and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, politically, it it was, you know, just hairy in places, but for the most part, you know, I enjoyed the whole thing, and I would I wouldn't trade it for the world. I look back on it now in two thousand eight as we approach two thousand nine. Yeah. I wonder where I ever got the energy to deal with it. <laughs> Yes, it was somewhere around 2000, and, and you found your way back into the studio writing and composing, I guess, uh, scores for television and jingles, which, you know, that can be as challenging as, as writing and composing and just, just a piece of work or a song because, you know, you have time constri- restrictions to deal with and, you know, not to mention you have to be creative to please both you but your client as well as opposed to writing something will ultimately just, you know, please your own musical aspirations. And Do you, yeah. do you, do you enjoy forget, that side of the don't business? Don't forget that the client doesn't know how to communicate musically with you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, That's right. That's right. <laughs> put that into the mix and try to make someone happy. It's, it is very tricky. It's very tricky. Jimmy Hahn is actually, I call him the Jingle Jedi because he's so good at it, what he does. You know? yeah. um, I, I did it and I, I landed a bunch of them and I still continue to do it. Um, but it's, you know, it's not the primary thing that I, I do, but it's, it's one of the many things I do and I enjoy it. It's a challenge. Yeah. Um, you know, working to picture and, and hitting certain things and marks and, you know, just trying to please the client. It's, right. it's a different approach to music, but yeah. it's still music at the end of the day, and, and you know, that's what I like about it. Right. Yeah, really. Um, you know, right around that time, you um, you know also hooked up with uh, Trevor Rabin. Yep. And, uh, uh, Trevor brought me on board to help him along with a project that he was working on, Mission Space, in, uh, which was a ride being developed. It's now in Disneyland. And uh, he was composing and composed all the music for Inside the Ride while you're on the crazy ride. That's and cool. I did the 30 minutes that you will hear as you approach the planetary uh, pavilion, they call it. Uh-huh. You know, after you've waited online 18 hours, you get to the last half an hour <laughs> right. of the ride. And uh, as you enter that area, you'll hear, you know, 30 minutes of classical music, I suppose, while you're 
standing there, and, and that's the stuff I did, yeah. A lot of fun. So at the beginning of that project, I mean, I just want to get inside of that a little bit. So you sit down with the client, and they say, hey, look, here's the, here's the ride, the feel, the aesthetics. What, what kind of uh, uh, marching orders or criteria or creative brief do they give you, you know, when you're... That uh, one was incredibly specific because it's timed. Every two minutes it has to hit this particular vibe so that the lights can come down, and wherever you are in line, all of a sudden you're looking at a plaque of Buzz Aldrin and you're hearing his famous <laughs> speech, and then the mm. lights go back up, and cool. you walk another two minutes. So, so I composed 30 minutes, and every two minutes it had to hit a sort of a feeling that, you know, kind of was a backdrop, and the music would kind of just hold while this was going on, and then after those two minutes, it's back to this flourishes and stuff, and um, somehow I found a way to kind of hit this particular D minor or major, I can't remember now which key I was in, but yeah. but something that just sort of rolled and became the link and the thread, and, and so I kind of used that as the thread of those two-minute pieces and then composed the other two minutes crazy and all over the place. But as, as long as it's sort of the key just jump jump into its kind of major key there to, to get it done, it, it seemed to do the job. It was a real challenge i was uh, slightly intimidated by the whole thing because i wasn't you know i've done orchestra stuff uh for jingles but nothing on that level where it's like all right tomorrow we go with the 65 piece orchestra let's go right and trevor really was uh, a really cool guy helping me along in that world and and uh, giving me that opportunity i'll never forget it yeah i really appreciated it in speaking with your composing for uh you know for strings uh when was uh, your when did you first dive into uh you know arranging or writing for strings and conducting them uh, you know, I, when I started working on jingles in 2000, mm-hmm. you know, I had dabbled with orchestra stuff on records and stuff, but never anything that was seriously orchestral without any rock and roll elements underneath it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so composing and trying to make an orchestra feel powerful, it's tricky. And I, you know, just listened to a lot of stuff that I liked, John Williams and different composers, and just kind of tried to emulate it as best I could. And and got kind of good at it, yeah. you know what I mean, accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> so like anything, as we talked about earlier in the conversation, you know, fear nothing. Grab yeah. the cello and figure out how to make it sound good. So this kind of orchestrating stuff is just a, it's another way of looking at a rock and roll scenario instead of, you know, bass, drums, guitar, and keys. You've got the, uh, you know, the bass drum player, mm-hmm. the string section of your keys, and, you know, the lead guitar might be your flute or something, you know. Right. So it's all how you look at it, but yeah. I, I, that's how I kind of approached it. Yeah. And I've scored a lot of stuff now that's as neat. a result of it. The, the Kind of the biggest gig that I had with the most pressure was the Mission Space gig, and it went really, really well. So Yeah. And then you, then you reunited with uh, Chris Squire again to produce another album called Conspiracy. Yep, and, uh, we had done one record before that was like a, a a collection of songs that we had written over the years that we weren't sure what to do with. And mm-hmm. while we were out on the road with Yes, I think it was, uh, we said let's let's get this together and put out a record. So that became the first one. Then it was like more of a serious approach for the second record. And uh, you know, nine eleven had happened, and it was kind of heavy time and. The, the writing was kind of on the darker side of things, but uh, I'm really proud of that record. I think it's really strong. It has mm-hmm. an interesting statement. Yeah. Well, keeping with uh, those Yes connections, another band that you're involved with is Circa, which includes you know past Yes members Alan White and Tony yeah. Kay, and as well as uh, your old buddy Jimmy Hahn. And how, how did this band evolve? Well, um, I had just finished 
um, a tribute record that I did of, of a remake of The Wall called Back Against the uh, Oh, yeah, right. Back Against the Wall. Yeah. And I had assembled a bunch of Yes members for that project, uh, and I started thinking about what would it be like to create an original album and get anyone who's been in Yes involved and sort of see if mm. that could happen. I mean, yeah. You know, as crazy it is, as it is, and as, as crazy as I know everything is in that landscape, I still thought that would be an interesting thing to pursue and try to make happen, and mm-hmm. maybe that could, could happen. So started talking about that. One thing led to another. I quickly realized that that, <laughs> that was just too crazy of an idea. <laughs> so I said to Tony Kay, you know, we had become friends uh, again, reacquainted through this process of him kind of coming out and playing on some of my stuff. Uh-huh. That I said, man, you know, it's a cool hang with you. Let's let's make some music. I was thinking about this. Let's let's take it another direction and just start looking at it more like a band. Okay. And you know, who would we want to play drums? And it was like, well, sure. let's get Alan to play. You know. Um, and then it was like, well, guitar-wise, Jimmy's a great guy to have in a band. It's been a while. Let me give him a buzz. So before we knew it, we kind of had a band. Yeah. And <laughs> it was it just seemed like the more logical, sane approach to things. And yeah. now we have evolved, and we've got our first record, and we played a bunch of gigs, and we've got our live DVD. And as it stands now, <clears throat> currently, you know, yes, is in another state of flux here where they might be pursuing another way to do what they do uh, with a different singer now that John's kind of not in their world. Yeah. And that news brought the reality that that's an unknown timeline and it's going to be really tricky to kind of move Circa forward if we're in a holding pattern waiting to see what Yes is going to do because Alan's got to deal with Yes. Oh, okay. So because of that, we kind of all came to the conclusion that it's just best if, you know, Alan, you know, you go do your thing with Yes and figure that out, and we'll be Circa and carry on. And, and so we've done that. Now we've brought Jay Shellen on board, who played Conspiracy of the Unknown. Okay, okay. And was also on the big piece. And he's played with Asia, and he's played with a bunch of other people. He played with Tony Kay, actually, in, in uh, a previous band as well. So so we are now moving forward with Jay and making a new record, and... and uh, should have it out at the uh, end of the year or the beginning of the next one. Very cool. And of course, you, you do the you share the uh, primary load of, of, of when it comes to vocals, right? Uh, Pretty this, much, yeah. yeah. You know, Jimmy sings a little bit here and there, mm-hmm. and on the last record, my brother sang a little bit here and there. But for the most part, yeah, I just get in there and whack it out. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you you guys all sharing the writing and composition duties with Circa, and, and if not, which uh, which of you are responsible for? We've for kind that? of, you know, I may come up with an idea and play it for the guys, and they're like, "That's cool. What if you did this here? What if you did that there?" And vice versa with their music, and mm-hmm. or Tony might bring me a piece of music from the past that he found, and it's like, "Wow, that's cool. Let's develop that and yeah. merge it with this piece." So, there's really no set way that we go about it. It's just sometimes it comes from here, there, and everywhere. You know, cool. Hey, talk to me a little bit about uh, let's let's get a little bit of uh, technical information. Um, can you describe your the your setup rig uh, when you're in the studio uh, or when yeah. you tour? I mean, tell us a little bit about uh, my I, studio is is laid out. I use Digital Performer mm-hmm. as the recording uh, you know platform, yeah. and I, it's a mixture of old school, new school. It's like computers and and plugins, but it's also 
run, I track everything through my console, which is laid out like a Trident ADB, mm-hmm. uh, except it's made by Tascam. Mm-hmm. It's a big board. It's been modified by Rick Luxemburg at, uh, at uh, Audio Upgrades, and it just sounds amazing. Yeah. Cool. And so I track everything through the board, and then I run, uh, you know, the the playback through the board. It's it's not really getting any tricks on the console. It's just to to have a juicy line amplifier uh, getting the signal. Mm-hmm. And um, then I just kind of use whatever any instrument is coming at me. I've mm-hmm. got guitars galore. I may use line sixes. I may use amplifiers, depending right. on who I'm working with or how lazy I'm being. Yeah. You know? <laughs> if I just want to plug in and play, yeah. I'll plug into a line six. Yeah. Sure. Your, ba- your bass setup? I've got keyboards around. I've got a, a great set of DWs that I use. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, I just kind of do my thing here with uh, sometimes people bring in exotic instruments and we just mic them up and go for it in my ISO room. But for the most part, I have an arsenal of instruments here that, you know, a lot of guitar players, last time Lukather was here, he didn't even bring a guitar. He just kind of showed up and grabbed one off <laughs> the wall cool, and played. Cool. <laughs> so I kind of try to set up my world so that it's really user-friendly and and fast, Yeah. You know? I just saw uh, Lukather a couple of weeks ago. I hung out with him a little bit prior to a show he did here, and uh, he's cool. he's out on the road uh, supporting it in support of his new album. And, yeah, uh, he's amazing. Hey, you know, I, I was going to ask you about Circus plans for the future, but you kind of spelled that out a minute ago. You've got you're in the studio now working on stuff, and you, it's yep. going to be out next year. And but speaking of of new material, you recently released your third solo album. This one called At the Speed of Life. Yeah. And tell me about the approach to this album. And what kind of uh, feel were you going for? Well, I, you know, this one is just, I kind of, in my own world, just thinking about melodies or chord passages and start sketching out ideas and mm-hmm. then filling it in and, and just creating music. And before I knew it, I had a lot of music. And uh, I started shaping it all into kind of a concept in terms of the speed of life, you yeah. know, being uh, tied into the cosmos and our own inner body clock and all that kind of stuff. And and uh, it just started slowly developing and becoming kind of conceptual in its own way, and um, there was no real set writing procedure that I used on it. I just kind of had music that I I wanted to work on, and I felt like I I need to do this stuff all by myself just to get this creative process out. Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of your uh, creative process, you know, you said you just said a couple of seconds ago that uh, you don't really have a process, but it, do you have a beginning point at all? Do you basically start with grooves, a bass line? It, how typically you know, do you it work? It comes from so many different places. Yeah. I might, you know, be working on a project, and as I'm on a break, I'll hear a melody in my head, mm-hmm. and I'll mm-hmm. jot it down on a MIDI piano at the end of whatever sequence I'm working on and come back to it weeks later and go, yeah. Oh, yeah, that melody was cool. Let yeah. me develop that. Okay. Or, you know, I might be driving in my car and kind of hear sort of a groove that, um, you know, in my mind I'm thinking about for a drum and a bass groove, and, and I'll call my cell phone and sing it into my cell phone so I don't forget it. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> it comes from very bizarre places. Yeah. Rarely does it come from, okay, today I'm sitting down to write a song. Here <laughs> right, right. You know, and the first initial idea usually comes at me from the most bizarre places, Yeah, you know. Like I think you just mentioned a moment ago, you you know I think you pretty much played all the instruments on this, uh, uh, all the parts on this new album. But did you bring in anyone else to lay down tracks for it? Nope. Nope. Just no, all you. I did it all myself. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I just um, just kind of 
most of the time after working on it after other sessions, <laughs> you know, finish with one session, everybody splits, yeah. and it's like, okay, let me put this up and kind of work on it. Yeah, so, <laughs> very there cool. There was no one around to play any instruments, you know. Yeah. <laughs> hey, while we're talking about this, let's take a quick break and dive into a track from At the Speed of Life, the new solo album from our guest, Billy Sherwood. This is a track called Forward. Yeah. 
And that was the track called Forward from the album At the Speed of Life. And our guest today, Billy Sherwood. Well, where can, uh, you know, if, if our listeners want to pick this up, uh, where can they go to, to get it? Can they get it on it's, iTunes? It's yeah. being sold exclusively. I'm kind of doing an independent thing, just like with Circa, uh-huh. um, except the address for my store is Billy Sherwood HQ, like headquarters. Yep. So BillySherwoodHQ.com. Okay. And you um, just swipe your credit card or PayPal or, you know, money order, whatever payment method you'd like. And they get the record to you uh, very swiftly, or the reports that I'm getting back from people who have bought the record, they're getting them in, in really quick turnaround. Good. So Good. Trying to, you know, just do it ourselves and, and keep it, uh, you know, grassroots and kind of in the family. So. Great. Very cool. Hey, one, uh, we're, we're about to wrap up here, but I have one more question. Um, you know, I remember growing up hearing this amazing voice on the radio. You know, one of the best rock radio personalities in the country, a guy named Jim Ladd. That's Jim Ladd. Tell, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell us about your association with Jim and what kind of projects you've worked uh, on with him. Well, I met Jim on the, the Wall remake. I asked him to be a part of that, and, and he uh-huh. did. And as a result of that, we became really fast friends. He's a super uh-huh. cool dude, and yeah. we just get along great. And, uh, uh, you know, we I said to him, you're a DJ, I'm a musician, man. We should do something together, but I'm just not <laughs> yeah. sure what. Right, right. <laughs> and he kind of said, yeah, we should think of something. And then kind of dawned on me, he's got his show every Wednesday that he does, this conceptual freeform show called Headsets. And I said, oh, maybe we could turn that into a record. And he came up with the concept for the whole thing in a blink. And we made a record. <laughs> that's there cool. There you go. Now I heard, you know, I think... And that's available, and it's uh, selling it our, ourselves as well. At Jim Ladd, L A D D, Jim Ladd Headsets, plural, Jim Ladd Headsets.com. Very cool. And uh, everyone who's got it's really digging that one, too. It's a very <laughs> much a, a spacey kind of, uh, a, you know, mind trip kind of record. So it's, it's very cool. And <laughs> we hope to do another one, you know. Well, speaking of that, where, where, can, uh, where can our listeners go to find out more about, you know, your career and to hear more of your work? Well, uh, you could come to my MySpace, which is, you know, myspace.com forward slash Billy Sherwood HQ. Yeah. And uh, from there, you can link off to my website, which is billysherwood.com. Uh-huh. And there's a, uh, you know, a history of all the records I've made there and all that kind of stuff. Or, uh, you know, you can, you can also just Google to find some information. Oh, that's true. About it. There's a ton of stuff out there <laughs> now that I've done so many of these tribute records and work with so many different people, the Lexus Nexus just kind of goes haywire when yeah. you put the name in there. So, <laughs> right, right. Um, people can look through that. But for the most part, you know, the, uh, the website of mine covers a lot of information. Between that and the MySpace, they should be good to go. Excellent. And, you know, I would like to, you know, formally invite anyone who's listening to this to uh, come join me at my MySpace and, you know, join me as a friend so that you're in the loop. Come join the party. Very That's cool. Way to do it. Great. Yeah. Well, hey, Billy, thanks so much for spending this time with us and sharing your stories and uh, your music with us. Right on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All thanks right. a lot, Billy. We'll see you. Take care. All right, man. I'll talk to you guys soon. All right. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Billy Sherwood for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new episode of Inside Music Cast every other week. Be sure to check out InsideMusicCast.com for continuing updates, including our People's Forum, where you can chat about all things music with Inside Music Cast listeners from around the world. That's InsideMusicCast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.
Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. 